What's up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Whit Gibbs, co-founder and CEO of Compass Mining. According to their website, Compass is a Bitcoin-first company on a mission to support the decentralized growth of hash rate and strengthen network security by helping more people learn, explore, and mine Bitcoin. In the last couple of years, interest in Bitcoin mining has seemingly exploded as the industry has developed and as more and more people begin to understand just how diverse its impact will be and the opportunity that it therefore represents. Additionally, many individuals are beginning to get involved, not just because of the financial incentives, but also because of the desire to contribute to the further decentralization of Bitcoin security. Whitney's team have obviously struck a nerve with the market, and you really get the sense that they're developing a platform from which will emerge many opportunities in the not-so-distant future. Enjoy. All right, well, Whit, uh, welcome to Closing the Loop. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this discussion today. John, thanks for having me. Uh, so for people that aren't familiar with Compass or you, why don't you give us the brief introduction and we'll get it rolling from there? Absolutely. So <laughs> I think like most people who are in the space now and who are invested into Bitcoin, uh, I bought the top. I think that is the common story for a lot of people, whether it was you know 2012, 2014, 2015, or with me, 2017. Uh, we tend to hear about Bitcoin at a time when everyone is hearing about Bitcoin. And that's when you make this decision that it's it's time for you to uh, to make the change, to to get invested, to to look at it in a more meaningful way. And that's what it was for me. You know, in 2017, I'd just left a job, um, had a, a good bit of money saved up and decided to just cash in all my chips, pushed all my life savings and took a $40,000 loan, bought Bitcoin <laughs> at the top. How top are we talking? Are we talking like December 12th or like, whatever it was? I'm or? talking like, I was looking back through my uh, my trading journal and it was at like 17,500, right around there. <laughs> so it was pretty, it was pretty, it was pretty tippy <laughs> Pretty top. good. Yeah. yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and then I spent the rest of 20, like 2018 just trying to convince my wife not to leave because I just lost all of our money. <laughs> no. Um, but no, look, for us, it was, you know, we had a conversation as a family and we decided, look, we're going to weld the back door shut. This is this is the only plan. This is plan A. This is the future. We're going to figure it out. Um, and over the course of 2018, I spent a lot of time researching the space, going to a ton of conferences, learning everything that I could. Uh, and then, you know, midway through 2018, I found mining. And mining for me was very relatable because it was tangible. You know, like I'm not a trader. Bitcoin is... I mean, it, it's real and it's hard money, but it's also this this thing that's out there you know, that you buy on an exchange, right? And if you're not mm. a trader, it, it can be a bit nebulous. But with mining, I got it. I understood that like you you buy this hardware, you set it up, and it creates the Bitcoin for you. So um, knowing that I knew a little bit, but not enough, I started a podcast. So I started the podcast, Hashrate Podcast in 2018, so that I could interview more people in the mining space. And then over the course of the next year and a half, I got to know so many people in the mining industry. And I realized that everyone was leaning towards, you know, being a big player, being industrial, building a 100,000 square foot data center and mining at scale. And to me, while there's no harm in that, and I want you know, people should make money how they feel they should make money. Um, for me, I thought that there's got to be a lot of like smaller people like myself who want to mine Bitcoin so I got together with a couple of guys, Thomas Heller 
and Paul Gosker. And we founded Compass in August of 2020. And then we launched the platform in October of 2020. And Compass was designed to be this Airbnb of sorts for people who wanted to mine Bitcoin, right? We'll help you find your hardware. We help you find a good hosting space somewhere in a a good facility around the world. And then you're mining Bitcoin to your wallet and you just get a a monthly power bill. Um, We weren't sure if if the market would respond. You know, when we launched, we were like, okay, maybe we're the only people that feel like this. Um, But now we're, you know, about 10 months into the company. And thankfully, it's been an awesome ride. The community's responded very well. Um, And, you know, we've grown from a, you know, a team of three founders. Now we're almost at 50 people. So, yeah, we're excited. And the the cool thing is we're getting to provide people who want to be full-time Bitcoin with jobs to then support the Bitcoin network, which is super exciting. Yeah. I got so many questions about Compass, but before we get to that, I just want to backtrack a bit. Um, what was it? <clears throat> you know, I know there was a lot of, I remember the time well, there was a lot of hype and, you know, the, the, the rocket ship was taking off and it's, you know, late 2017 was a very you know unique period. But what was it at that time? Let's say price action always plays on your psychology. So aside from that, what was it that clicked for you at that period that you decided to make such a dramatic move, which was all in in every conceivable way? So I was a, a new dad at the time and um, in a young marriage. And I'm looking at my wife, I'm looking at my daughter, and I'm thinking, okay, I can always have a good job, right? I, I, I can go out and I can earn a living somewhere. But my money is going to decrease in value year after year for the rest of my life. So even if I continue to make more money, when I die, whatever I leave is probably not going to provide any kind of real uh, life for my kids. And when I looked at Bitcoin, I looked at it like this amazing opportunity to create generational wealth, uh, which provides security, you know? So obviously like making money is a part of it, but I was very quick to denominate my, my portfolio in Bitcoin, Right, rather than looking at it in a fiat mindset, um, and that's always ha- as it has been. I think that uh, what what really was the page turner for me is when someone told me that, like, okay, right now when you first start trading, you're you know you're trading Bitcoin and valuing it in dollars. But the minute that you realize that it's not about accruing more dollars, it's about accruing more Bitcoin. It all just it just clicked. It clicked and. Um, that really was it for me. From then on, mm-hmm. everything became, how can I generate more Bitcoin, right? Irrespective of price. Because yeah. over a long enough you know, time frame, it's going to continue to appreciate in value. But most importantly, if you accumulate enough of it, then you can leave that for whoever follows you and your family, the next generation. And they're set because they're going to have this hard money of the future to provide for them and their kids um, so I look at it kind of as a responsibility now to just stack as many sats as possible. Totally. Uh, this one's a bit personal. You can you can swerve it or, or you know tell me <clears> you don't <throat> want to go down this too much. But like, what was eighteen like, right? Because and look, many people found themselves in the situation. The whole reason why a top is a top is because mm-hmm. everybody, more and more and more people pile in. Yeah. And then you know the 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 rug kind of gets pulled out from under you for a while, and you're the one left holding the bag. So you go from entering in at seventeen to, you know, I think the low of the cycle was 33, something like Mm -hmm. that. So how did you continue to rationalize the move? Was there any shaking of faith? 
you know, how, how was that year for you? I guess is, is the way to put it year and a half. Yeah. So, um, you know, towards the end of Q1, everything dumped and, uh, you know, for us, it was, it was a moment to batten down the hatches. You know, we, we, like I said, my wife and I had had this conversation that this was going to be the path. Uh, and I remember having a talk with her and just saying, look, it's living on the side of the road or living in the penthouse. We're going to figure it out. It, it's going, it's, this is the way that it has to be. Um, and I was fortunate to get around some very great people in the space who were willing to mentor me in different aspects of, uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem. So I did learn how to trade. I, I was able to start building a bigger position in Bitcoin. Um, and then I got into mining and mining provided a really great opportunity to generate revenue. My first mining operation wasn't for Bitcoin. I built my first computer uh, to mine Ravencoin. And I know that, you know, some people may feel some kind of way about that. But how I have always looked at it is, you know, altcoins exist to help you increase your Bitcoin stack. And while now that's, you know, maybe less of a, a thought for me, at that point in time, everything was about how can I get as much Bitcoin as humanly possible? And I was willing to do whatever I needed to do within the means of the law to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, that 2018 ended up being one of the best years of my life because I felt like I grew, I grew so, so much. I learned so much about myself um, and it ultimately brought me to mining and mining has, you know, I, I would say blessed my family and I in ways that we never could have imagined. That's amazing. So take me to the point you said you, you started up the podcast to, you know, get deeper into this world. Um, how did you make the decision ultimately after getting more exposure, after learning more about this world that, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur in this space and, and this is, the, this is op opportunity I want to capitalize on. How'd you come to that decision? It's a great question. So there's a couple of things that played into that. Before I got into crypto, I worked at a company called PuppySpot.com. And PuppySpot was a large online dog brokerage. Um, but what it taught me is that consumer buying behavior is changing. And that's the lesson that I learned at PuppySpot. So when I got into to Bitcoin, and I'm looking at you know all the opportunities in the space, I had two very important conversations. One was with a mentor who said, look, everything is so nascent. This is such a new industry that if you just take, uh, take focus on one part of it and dedicate yourself to that for 10 years, after 10 years, you will be an industry authority in that, in that part of the industry, right? Um, and then the other conversation was actually with Peter McCormick. So Peter had posted a tweet and that just said, hey, look, anyone who wants to get into podcasting, reach out. I'm happy to help, happy to come on your show. And I had no intentions of podcasting. But when I saw that tweet, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to reach out to him. I listened to his show. I'm going to see if he'll let me interview him. Uh, and he did. And that was really it. You know, I had the conversation with him and he encouraged me like, look, you may not get a ton of downloads for a while. Just keep chopping wood. Eventually it'll come through for you. And that really just, it resonated. And then, so the podcast, and I, I, I know the podcast and remember the podcast, and uh, I think it's been rebranded now, right, under, under the, the, the Compass brand. But how did you, you know, when did you decide that you wanted to go into the entrepreneurial space, you know, kind of off the deep end and make a bigger leap than just starting a podcast? It really came in the beginning of 2020. So in the beginning of 2020, I mean, I guess before that, I tried a couple of things within the space, like uh, 
you know, I was looking to launch a, an operating system for miners um, with a group of guys and it just, it didn't pan out. And in 2020 had the, um, the idea of, of figuring out how we could help more people mine Bitcoin. You know, it was clear to me that there was a lot of capital that was being deployed into Bitcoin mining because people saw that as the, the future. And if you're going to lay out a bunch of capital, it should be for something that's sustainable that you're going to be able to profit off of for a long time. And, uh, and then I linked up with Thomas Heller, actually, he was with F2 pool. I interviewed him on the podcast and we just hit it off, became friends. Um, and along with Paul Gosker in the summer of 2020, we started kicking around this idea of like, you know, what if you had a platform that you could, you could help people mine Bitcoin through, uh, and we just fleshed it out and focused on getting it built and launched it in, in October. And that was really, it all happened pretty quick, you know, in the span of a year, it went from, okay, how do we do this to let's figure it out to launching the product itself. And uh, it's, it's been a wild ride. Sure. And what the thesis generally was, there's a lot of individuals who want to mine Bitcoin, but, you know, can't gain access to cheap energy, may, may not have the technical expertise, you know, may not know anything about it, but, but want to be mining. And the second, the, to piggyback on that question is, what, what is the motivation for people to want to mine that you guys were presuming to be able to meet or solve? Sure. So let's go back to Puppy Spot for a second, because this is how it all ties in. With Puppy Spot, they were a trusted third party. They would screen breeders around the country, and then they would list these breeders' puppies on a website. And then you, sight unseen, would buy these dogs that would fly to you and you would pick them up at your airport. That was the first interaction that you would have with your puppy. Now, when I grew up, I grew up on a farm. If you wanted to buy a puppy, you went, you met the litter, you met the breeder, you met the parents, and it was a whole thing. Um, but when I saw how Puppy Spot as a trusted third party was able to gain traction in that industry and disrupt that industry, it, it spoke to me. So when I got into mining, I'm thinking, okay, well, there's all of these data centers that have available capacity. They are offering favorable rates. Um, there's all of these machines out of China that need to be sold and find a home. Why is no one putting these two together? Is it there's a lack of demand or is it just that, you know, this really is a game for industrial players? So I started to kick the idea around with friends like, hey, guys, if we were able to, you know, pull together some assets and, you know, get a facility, go like get a space in a facility where we could get favorable rates and we could buy machines in bulk and get good pricing. Is that something you would be interested in? And more people than I expected said yes. So we're like, all right, maybe we have something here. So, you know, when we, when we launched in October, it was just about that. Like we'd, we'd built up enough of a, a brand with the podcast and enough of a, a reputation within the industry that we could become that trusted third party. With Thomas's network being that he'd screened so many facilities or been to so many facilities while working at F2Pool, and I had a lot of connections from the podcast, it made a lot of sense for us to work together to launch that business. Um, and then we just basically adopted the puppy spot model, right? We're the, the trusted third party that can screen facilities, find you quality distributors for your hardware. And then you as a consumer, you can come on and know that you're in good hands. You can buy a machine, get it hosted, takes about 10 minutes and all of the, the muss and fuss is out of the process for you. And then you're just mining Bitcoin. Right. Um, and the second part of your question, our thesis is that as Bitcoin continues to grow, right? Obviously, profitability is something that everyone likes to focus on. But I think that the one thing that is there for most Bitcoiners is you want to secure the network. 
You know, we've heard for years that, you know, so much of the hash rate was located within China. Well, when we launched, we were basically giving everyone the ability to decentralize it. You know, we can talk about decentralization all day long, but if it's just, you know, 10 publicly traded mining companies in America and 10, you know, major mining companies in China that are controlling all the hash rate, it doesn't matter if they're located in different places around the world. It's still ultimately just 20 decision makers that control all of Bitcoin's hash rate, right? So what we've seen is that millions of Bitcoiners actually have a desire to support the network and secure their investment by mining. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to continue to see that grow over, over the years. Um, it's just all about accessibility, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like the, the Steve Jobs quote, right? People don't know what they want until they know what's available. Yeah. I think that's all that it was. What are the economic, you know, for a prospective customer, let's say, what are the economics that confront them, right? Because, and let's say versus the primary, you know, if our unit of account is Bitcoin, right? So there's, okay, there's sure. the opportunity cost is I could buy Bitcoin outright or I could mine. Now, as you said, there's an ideological component to the valuation here. And that is saying like, yep. I want to contribute to securing the network. What are the, re the remainder of the economic uh, decisions that confront a prospective customer? So the, the cliche is one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, right? And if you buy a Bitcoin, in order to accumulate more, you have to buy more. With mining, whatever you're investing in your hardware, typically you're going to return that amount in Bitcoin within the first 12 months. And then that machine will continue to generate Bitcoin for you in perpetuity, mm. right? As long as it's, it's profitable or it's mining um, viably in a place. But we're seeing that now extend, you know, five years plus with, you know, machines that are running in Venezuela that have been running since 2016. Um, but the other, the other economics that confront people, it really comes down to the cost of production of a Bitcoin when you're mining versus buying. You buy spot at whatever it is right now, 44,000 bucks, but you can mine a Bitcoin, you know, between eight and 12 and a half thousand dollars, depending on your, your inputs. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's drastically lower than, than spot. And I think that that's something that everyone really takes into consideration. Yeah. So it's kind of like diversifying the type of exposure you have to the same asset, right? So you're not diversifying across assets, Correct. but you're saying in certain market conditions, mining could potentially be, and this seems to be the case right now, dramatically more profitable than buying spot. As a result, I'm going to eat the upfront costs of, of the machine so that in those periods, because they won't always dominate, right? Sometimes spot will be cheaper than mm -hmm. mining and this will wax and wane. But so that in, sure. in those periods, uh, I'm hedging somewhat my Bitcoin accumulation strategy. Yes. And to be fair, I, I recommend doing both, right? Oh, like, of course. When it comes to when it comes to accumulating, do everything. Like, use your fold card. Like, just get it. Make sure you're buying you it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, whatever. What, like I said, whatever you can do within the measure of the law to get Bitcoin, get Bitcoin. Right. Um, but yes, you're you're absolutely right. The one thing that I think a lot of people don't consider is that your ASIC is actually an asset that's correlated to the price of Bitcoin. Right. So, if Bitcoin's forty four k now, and I buy an ASIC that's ten thousand bucks. And then Bitcoin goes to 100K, my ASIC's probably going to be worth 20,000 bucks. Mm. And I can sell it for Bitcoin. Yeah. So I'm then able to realize that delta, plus I've mined the Bitcoin in the meantime. And that's, you know, that's another benefit of, of mining. That's very interesting. And I think 
we're probably seeing that now, right? Because that supply crunch is exacerbated by, you know, not only supply chain disruptions that are predominated over the last 18 months, let's say, but just the general nature of the demand for, let's say, chips and and how mm-hmm. few uh, manufacturers actually supply them. So, But the, the, other, the interesting component of that is that ultimately the machines also deprecate, right? They, 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 they depreciate over time. Mm-hmm. So you've got this weird yeah. thing where it's like, market conditions could dictate that that becomes a a value an asset that's increasing in value fighting back its depreciation but only within a certain time frame like 10 years from now nobody's going to be using s19s probably right or s9s or whatever the whatever's in use today yeah uh so can you speak to that like how how that balance works yes so and Moore's law comes into play here mm-hmm. a little bit. So Moore's law is basically stating that every two years there's going to be advancements in the technology that are going to, you know, precede and outdate the those before. But what you what we're seeing now is that new generation machines are less and less uh, advanced than than those that that came before. The margin of improvement is not as great as it used to be. So when you're looking at an S nine and uh, you know. But I'll walk through these slowly. I know this is, I'm going to keep this high level. Um, but an S9, it, it runs at 13.5 terahash. So its computational speed, for lack of a better way of putting it, is 13.5 terahash. Then when you move to the S17, it was 53 terahash. That's a big jump, mm. right? Then you look at the S19. The S19 was 95 terahash. So from 53 to 95, again, another big jump. And then you have this new generation of machines, the S19Js, and they're 90 terahash, and there's a, a 100 terahash model, and they're you know that's that's not a jump at all, you know. Um, the next machine that is supposed to come out should be around 120 terahash. So again, we're seeing these these jumps get smaller and smaller, which means that these machines, these older generations, they'll run longer and longer. It's not going to be until something comes out that let's say is 200 or 180 um, that we're going to see this big changeover and these older machines really start to die off. And I mean, right now, honestly, any machine that you have, you can plug it in anywhere, paying almost any price for power, and you're going to be profitable. It's crazy. It's wild. It's 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 wild. Yeah, it really is. Is there any? Um, is it most likely that the machine will become redundant as a result of the technological advances in, in next gen or that they'll burn out from just general uh, wear and tear and use? Like uh, The te- technological advancements are, are what's most likely to, to sunset the old machines. These things are getting more and more durable. The beautiful thing about the competition between MicroBT and Bitmain is they've both leveled up. They're both producing great machines. Uh, I mean, I think the failure rate combined between these two is one to two percent. Um, which, when you look back at the S17s, they were twenty-five percent plus, wow. depending on the batch. So the machine, the quality is improving. So it will definitely be the technological advancements that that you know gets rid gets rid of these older generation machines. Right. And for people listening that have almost no familiarity with this industry, can you explain a terahash? You know, just what that means. <laughs> yeah. So. So the the and what these machines are we doing measure, generally? Yeah. So we measure the the we measure Bitcoin's network in hash rate, right? So you often hear it referred to as 
petahash or exahash as a, a big unit of measure for all of the computers that are running on Bitcoin's network um, contributing their individual hash rate. Now, a terahash is just a, a unit of hash rate that is generally assigned to the ASIC itself. Each ASIC produces hash rate, which is literally just the speed at which they can, their computational speed is the way that I would put it. I know a lot of people say that, you know, Bitcoin mining is basically just solving complex math problems. So if we were going to go with that, that um, analogy, then I would say that hash rate is basically the speed at which they can solve those problems. Right. That's the, the simplified way to put it. It's much more complex than that, but I think that's a, I think, I think a very good way a to think about it. Solving a problem is a better way to put it because not complex in the least, right? But it's just hard to solve, you know, for people that may not know yes. too much about all this. And so how many, what is the current uh, hash rate of the entire network? Something like... Oh, I knew you were going to ask me this. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been on Moody's dashboard today. <laughs> Ballpark. But we are... Yeah, we should be inching up towards 200x a hash. And in, in a number that people will be familiar with, how, how many computations per second does that mean? This is a, a technical question for, a, for someone in our, our, like for our CTO or someone in that department. Um, what you're looking at is you've got millions of machines on the network right now that are providing that hash rate. Yeah. So it, I, I guess, so is a tera hash a trillion hashes? Per second, yeah, it's one trillion hashes is a terahash. Tera hash. And then look at you, the, spot on. The network being exahashes, I believe that's another order of magnitude up, right? Or possibly it, it, two. Yes, right. Yes. So, anyways, we're talking about hundreds of trillions of of transactions a second, most likely tens to hundreds of trillions, if not more. But let's just say this. Correct. Let's just say these individual machines are doing trillions of computations per second that's what terahash means right yeah and we're at 136 exahash right now one quintillion is an exahash so a hundred some odd quintillion so the, the the bitcoin network as it stands today is doing a, roughly a hundred quintillion computations per second it is <laughs> Uh, and each miner, you know, with their terahashes is, is doing, you know, about a, a trillion per second, something like that. That's correct. Yeah. So, I mean, just, I'm, you know, that gives everyone an idea of the scale and One, amount of activity going on here. 100 trillion a second, I guess. That's, that's the per machine. Yeah, numbers that just don't really make sense to our brains because uh, they're too large. All right, so so getting back, you know, it's it's funny. It's funny how yeah, it, you know, now that you say that, you know, when you hear like we work in petahash and exahash and terahash all day long, right? But to sit back and think about how many hash hashes is a terahash or an exahash, you're the first person that's ever asked me that. It's the first time I've ever actually looked at it. <laughs> But to think that it all happens in a second, I mean, it, it, it literally boggles the mind. It's impossible to comprehend. Um, yes. Okay, so back to, so this is the, the reason why people might be, or that are interested in, in this is because they want to support the network. They want to feel like they have a stake in protecting the network and they want to accumulate more Bitcoin. They want to hedge their exposure to Bitcoin in a particular way. And, and you mentioned an interesting component of that is 
one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And so you can invest your money in Bitcoin and the nominal, you know, let's say the exchange rate value if your Bitcoin's growing, the nominal value is not, right? What, you know, you buy 10 Bitcoin, you always have 10 Bitcoin. Mining allows mm-hmm. you to increase your nominal value of Bitcoin. So there's, there's interesting economics there. You guys uh, have been operating for about a year. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, th- I, th- I thought I saw this recently where you said that you'd, you do it, you've crossed the $100 million in revenue mark. We did. As of June, we did about, uh, we've, we had done year to date about a hundred million in sales. Um, and this is basically seen, sales of machines and contracts for their running wherever in whatever facility they're running. That is correct. Yeah. I mean the, since June, really since Bitcoin 2021, we have seen, uh, more and more retail interest in mining and that it's been exponential growth since June. So since posting that we've, um, almost tripled revenue or tripled our, our total revenue since that post. Right. So we're, we're about a year since you started mm-hmm. and 300 million ish in revenue. Yes. And we will be the, the, the coolest number for us. Then the thing that we look at the most is that we will be at almost two X a hash of Bitcoin's network controlled by individual miners because compass doesn't self mine, uh, by Q1 of 2022. Wow. Which for us is incredibly exciting because this means that a meaningful part of Bitcoin's network is now in individuals' hands. Right. But just to be a stickler here, it's being hosted at more centralized locations, right? So there's a ownership contract that, yep. you know, so it's like it's quasi decentralized, right? It's, it's, it's happening in a dispersed manner because you guys work with so many different hosting providers. So that's mm-hmm. a means of making things more decentralized, but it's not necessarily decentralized yep. by each customer, right? Into the hands of each customer. It, it's not decentralized in that they are controlling them in their own home, but they still have complete oversight and control over those machines. So let's say you're right. hosting... And they legally own them. They, they legally own them. Yeah. Yes, they are theirs 100%. Mm-hmm. So if they want to sell them, they can sell them. If they want to recall them and mine at home, they can do that. They have that complete control over their hardware, uh, which really is is where the power lies, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have, I mean, we've had in the past the cloud mining options, the you know rig rental options, all of these situations where people try to gamify the ownership of the ASIC because whoever owns the ASIC has the power. And that's what most people, I think, fail to understand. So if you're purchasing a cloud mining contract, what you're actually doing is you're paying for someone else to own a machine. If you're renting an ASIC, it's like renting a, a property. You don't hold the, the, you know, the title to that land. You don't hold the, the title to that ASIC. You're just funding the ability for someone else to own it outright. So we see, especially in bull markets, we see new schemes or ways that people try to say that they're helping other people mine. But at the end of the day, all they're really doing is taking people's money to fund their own ASICs. And, you know, that was for us a big battle cry. It's like, if we're going to do this, people have to own their machines. Mm-hmm. You have to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but just back to how quickly things have scaled. How do you guys as a, a company determine, you know, how much you're going to charge for this fee, effectively what kind of a margin you guys are going to build into the service? And, you, you know, you're going to have to share some thoughts on, having operated for a year and being at a 300 mil annual uh, run rate or revenue 
because that's extremely rare. And, you, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear some of your commentary on, on how surprised you might be and, and how things are going and that kind of stuff. So at first we were surprised and now, now we think that, you know, this is going to end up being bigger than we ever could have imagined, right? Because um, there's so many people that want to mine Bitcoin, first and foremost. There, there are just so many people that want to mine Bitcoin. Um, when it comes to the, you know, for us as a company, how we're thinking about the, the economics of it, we're always focused on how can we, like, th these are customers at the end of the day for us, right? We want them to be happy. And for them to be happy, it needs to be a situation where they are up and running for the majority of the year, right? So our SLAs and our contracts state 95% uptime guaranteed. Uh, most of our facilities are at 98% plus. So that's one thing that we're focused on is making sure that you're up and hashing for you know as much of the day and the year as possible. Um, and then the other thing is the cost of power. So right now, because of the shortage of rack space that's been created by this Chinese exodus and this rush to mining in North America, you're seeing these hosting prices get astronomical. People are charging, you know, seven and a half, eight and a half, ten cents per kilowatt hour, just gouging people because they they think they can, right? It's a bull market. They want to capitalize on their opportunity. And, you know, for me, it just, what always rings in my head when I hear this is pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered, right? That's always what I think of when there's a, a situation where people are trying to capitalize off of certain market conditions because the market's going to turn. Like at some point, the market will turn. So what we've done at Compass is we cap our, um, our hosting costs at seven cents, so when facilities come to us and they say, hey, I want to list my facility on your site for 7.5 cents. I don't care how nice your facility is. I'm automatically rejecting you because that's a recipe for disaster. So we make, I mean, we, we take a loss on some of our facilities with the, the margins that we, that we have on hosting. Uh, but generally speaking, the facilities pay us 5% of whatever they list the, you know, the power for. Um, and we handle everything for them. You know, we're customer service, tech support, contracts. We're handling it all to make it easy. And plus, we want to make sure that we're providing a very high level of service to the customers that are coming through. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think we're going to see a big oversupply, which it's great because it will drive prices down. But it's also going to be a very sad situation because you will have people that right now are locking themselves into, you know, one, two, three, five year contracts paying, you know, seven cents plus that are going to be very upset with that decision. Right. And so you think a lot more facilities are going to be coming online uh, because there's so much demand for rack space, basically. Yeah, it's it's just it's the cyclical nature of any business, right? You have a shortage, and that shortage leads to an oversupply. Yeah, and that's all that's happening right now is we're experiencing a shortage, so everyone's building. Yeah, how long does a Compass customer have to commit to a certain facility? Our twelve month contracts, right? So we have twelve month contracts uh, in place for everyone. We've thought about offering longer contracts, and we may in the future because our customers are asking for it. Um, but we do, and you know, maybe, maybe this is the right way to think of it, but we do feel a responsibility to, to sometimes protect new market entrants from themselves. You know, I made a lot of dumb mistakes when I first got into the space. If there would have, you know, maybe if, if there would have been some kind of regulator on how much I could buy, um, maybe I wouldn't have lost so much money. So with us, we were always looking at what controls can we put into place that will allow people to mine to their benefit without potentially putting them in a harmful situation long-term. Yeah. 
And I, you, you mentioned that you take a loss on some. I imagine with all of the facilities that you work with and all the prices of power and the, what the, the rack space fees are, you need to try to normalize them lest all of your customers want to go to just the one facility, right? So you can't just, you've got to, you've got to try to find a, an equilibrium that works that you can spread out between everywhere, right? So, yeah. And, you know, we, we want the, the market to do its thing, right? So in October, we're launching our fully two-sided marketplace. So people will be able to list machines and hosting space in a much more free manner. Um, but, you know, what, what ends up happening is you'll have facilities that come on. They'll see what other facilities are priced at. They'll determine how they feel they compare. And then they'll price their, their facility accordingly. Um, and naturally the cheaper facilities fill up first. Mm. So, but right now everything is filling up. I so everything this. that lists yeah. on Compass yeah. fills up. I mean, we, we generally sell all space that we list, um, within a couple of weeks. I mean, depending on the capacity, if it's a megawatt or less, that goes in a day. Mm. What, and I think I know some of the answer to this already. What are you guys doing differently? Because Rack space was a thing in 17 too, right? But the problem mm -hmm. was like everyone was just going crazy and they're like, yeah, sure, I'll pay 30 cents, you know, a, a kilowatt hour or whatever it is. Like they were just paying out the nose for rack space and for, for energy, right? When the price is pumping because, it, you know, I guess it made economic sense or at least there was FOMO in that regard. Mm -hmm. What are you guys doing as a company that is different than all, you know, the, the rack space providers back then? So... I, you know, I would be talking out of turn if I spoke about what was going on in 2017 with Rackspace because I wasn't I wasn't involved. But I will say that when we, I mean, we started the company because we wanted to mine Bitcoin. And when we were doing our market research, um, we just found that the the service providers that were out there, um, the service wasn't a focus. Mm -hmm. I guess is the most polite way that I, I can say it. Mm -hmm. Um, we would have everything from, you know, we'd call and say, hey, I want to buy an ASIC. And they'd be like, well, come back when you have enough money for five, right? And I mean, just like that, like no, you know, sugarcoating it. It was just, you know, you're, you're not in the league that we're willing to deal with. Um, and then once you're a customer, I mean, you know, you're there, your machine's there. They know you're locked into a contract and they tend to treat you pretty poorly, so what we've really focused on is service, right? Like without mining, Bitcoin doesn't exist. So shouldn't all miners be treated like VIPs? I mean, that's the the mindset that we take. Mm. So we want to do whatever we can. Right? Like transparency is a big thing for us. Um, we we want to make sure that people feel appreciated and special because in our mind they are. Um, without them, you know, maybe selfishly, our investments aren't as secure. Like our Bitcoin investments aren't as secure without the miners. So we want to make sure that they feel happy and appreciated and valued. Um, and, you know, that's really all that we focused on. Mm -hmm. You know, of, of our 50 people on our team, well over 60% are service and support members. Right. And so the, the facilities that you work with, the incentive for them is, okay, Compass is coming to me at scale. So, you know, it's, they're, bring, they're filling up a lot of rack space and they're reliable and they're locking it in. So, yes, maybe it's a... They're, they're squeezing me a bit harder on the price than what I might be able to get, you know, sporadically on the open market. But I'm, I'm taking the, the certainty and the scale that they're bringing to the table. And that's why so many of these facilities decide to work with you guys. That, that's a part of it. But service is two way, right? Like for us, we also value those relationships. We 
I mean, we want everyone on that side of the equation to also feel valued because they're providing a, a key service, not only to our business, but to the miners. Um, so we, you know, we take the approach of making sure that for whatever the fee is that they're going to pay us, they feel like it's, you know, less than what they'd be willing to pay, right? We want them to feel like they're getting a deal. Mm -hmm. And I think that because of that, um, people are, they're eager to work with us. I mean, obviously if you're a self miner and you have excess capacity, you're gonna have to pay for that power anyway. So we make for a natural hedging instrument for them. Um, but then for others who are just, you know, they've got extra capacity, they've, you know, maybe got a warehouse that's empty. Uh, we make for a natural partner. It allows them to generate some revenue. But they also know that we're going to be a, a no must, no fuss kind of customer, right? We're going to come in there and we take care of everything. If they need hands-on to help them with tech support, we'll send our team out to help them. If, um, you know, any customer service issues, we're shouldering all of that. Any kind of uh, billing issues or guarantees that need to be in place. We take care of all of that. So we're assuming all of that burden so that these facility owners and operators can just do that. They can own and operate the facility and we will take care of, of everything for them. And it's right. been so far very well received. And so I guess a big element of what you guys do is making sure on the facility side of things, you've got good partners, right? Because the tech support is in their hands and they have to be doing it properly to make sure you have uptime and things are, are taken care of properly and stuff. So how, how stringent, I guess, is the vetting process? If you were to see 10 facilities, I mean, how many do you think would be acceptable partners? So generally it's about 40% to make it through our screening process. Um, and that's, that's the biggest break, yeah. I mean, the biggest breakdown is communication, you know, like, you can smell when somebody's full of shit. Mm. You just can, right? So when you talk to someone and you just get the sense that there's something off, right? Um, we don't try to figure out what's off. We just cut ties, you know? Uh, and the reason for that is it's not our money, our machines that are at risk. It's other people's machines. So if it was ours, okay, well, maybe we can assume that risk. But if it's other people, no way. There's no chance. Like there, we will not put other people's hardware at risk not knowing that there's been so many horror stories of people's hardware that's just been lost or, you know, gone up in a bankruptcy or whatever the case may be. So, you know, we start with a, a basic KYC process for the facilities. Then we do an interview. Um, then we have a very stringent background check for the facility itself financially and for the owners of the facility. And then we have our, our walkthrough. And the walkthrough is the physical inspection just to make sure that uh, everything is on the up and up. Generally, if there is a failure on a facility's part, it happens in the second step during the interview. Right. Um, we just have we have a very specific way that we're interviewing people to, you know, sniff out the people who are just here for the bull run. Yeah. How much of a bottleneck is the ASIC supply? Because you know, lots of customers, rack space coming online, but we have all heard about these production bottlenecks in the ASIC department. So how much is that a constraint on, on your growth and your ability to, to service customers or take on new customers? We have, so it's, it's a very important question. We have been very fortunate, I would say, to have great relationships with the manufacturers and with a lot of the distributors in China. Um, again, it just it's part of our service culture, right? It's just how we handle everyone that we come into contact with. Um, but we have not faced any any hardware challenges for for us. It's been rack space, and I think that you know for the foreseeable future, that's you know probably for the next six months, that's going to be the big challenge. Right. Let me ask it a different way then. How far sure. in advance do you have to put?
put in your hardware order and how does that impact how you guys are projecting for, you know, uh, demand customer side? So what, what, <laughs> so without giving away too much of our buying strategy, <laughs> um, tell me everything. We, 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 t- we tend to book our orders, you know, three to six months out, right. depending on where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we started with no money in the treasury, so we had to be scrappy with it. Um, and we've just kind of kept that mentality and we are now in a position, fortunately, where we can, you know, place some of these larger orders with Bitmain and MicroBT. So we're starting to do that. Um, uh, but there's a lot of facilities that they buy hardware that they want to sell and we are helping them. Right. You know, they, they come to Compass as a vendor and sell the hardware through us. Right. What do you make of, uh, the recent Blockstream announcement that they acquired Spondulis, I believe, and they're going to be getting into, uh, mining or manufacturing ASIC? All I got to say is let's go, let's go. <laughs> I got there. That was a, I'm stoked for that. I, you know, it's, uh, it's awesome that they took that step. I know Blockstream gets a lot of hate. They get a lot of hate, but it's just because they are doing stuff. And, you know, nobody erects a statue to a critic. Right. It's, it's so easy to sit on the sidelines and talk about what other people are trying to accomplish. And I think that Blockstream has done so much for the space that just it goes unnoticed or it goes unappreciated. Um, I'm pumped for them to do something with these bundles. I, I don't know what they're going to do yet. But I'm I'm like bugging Samson all the time. Like, hey, let's like I want to get on a call. I got to learn what what are you guys doing? Yeah. So I mean, I'm sure it's like I'm sure it's going to be big and it's going to be awesome. I mean, they've done so much cool stuff, and you know, clearly they can execute. So it should be should be interesting to see how that impacts the the broader uh, market for Asics. Um, yes. I want to go back. You know, I your reaction to achieving 300 million in revenue within the first year of operating was subdued to say the least. So I, I at least want to ask this question as a result of that performance and that, uh, yeah, I mean, those results, what are you now projecting? Cause presumably that's forced you to, you know, revise your original business model to the upside. You said that you were surprised. How are yeah. you now projecting the growth of this company over the next, you know, one to I don't, I can't even say three to five. So one to two years, you know, it's funny. We went through the, the, the business plan the other day that we, for our seed round that we'd put out and we projected $8 million in sales for all of 20, 2021. Like that was what we projected. Um, <laughs> when we look forward now, knowing what we have on the horizon, I think that irrespective of market conditions, you know, and Again, I, th- I think I'm a bit contrarian in saying that, but I, th- I think that we are on pace next year to do about 750 million in sales. Um, and that's what we're pushing for. You know, right now we're getting inbound demand for about 50 megawatts of hosted capacity every month. Uh, I think that, you know, by Q2, Q3 of next year, we'll, we will be able to push that up to 70, 75. And again, it's just going to come down to rack space. Um, but we are in the process. So we've got line of sight on about 900 megawatts for 2022 and into Q1 of 2023 in various parts of the world. Uh, so we are going to be able to meet those demands. And I, I'm, I'm excited about that because that 900 megawatts is all going to go to retail. Like we have big customers that want it and we're just, we're not going to like, we're not going to allocate this space to whales. This is all going to go to the plebs and we're fired up about it. <laughs> 
Amazing. Well, and congratulations. That's a tremendous accomplishment. Uh, did you guys, have, you mentioned seed capital. Have you guys raised much money for this? How did that process go? Is it mostly self-funded? Whatever you can share in that domain. So we, we uh, raised some money from you know, friends and family when we were first getting started. And then we did a seed round in December, January of 2020, 2021. Uh, and we raised 1.7 million. And that's, that's all that we've raised so far. And pres- I mean, is there a necessity to raise? It doesn't sound like it, but of course there's different variables internally. So is that on the, the, the timeline? It, potentially. We, we're considering it. Um, it's, not, it's not that it would be a necessity um, at this stage, but there is a lot that we want to accomplish mm-hmm. that would you know, force us to consider a raise. Yeah. yeah. One of those things might be, and maybe not, but it was, gonna, it was a question I was going to ask anyways, but how defensible is your position in the market, right? Like either from competitors coming in and taking market share or either from the dynamics of the market shifting rapidly and, and the, comp- the, the service being somewhat affected. Like yeah. how, how, how do you guys consider that? So we, uh, when it comes to defensibility, the, the number one question that we get asked when we are out having conversations is if you have access to cheap power and cheap hardware, why aren't you self-mining? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the most defensible position that we have is that we have committed to never self-mining and other, other companies that are going to come into the space don't have that same commitment. Now, self-mining and hosting cannot live in the same body. It is a conflict of interest. So if you have a company that is self-mining and they are hosting, it is only a matter of time before they de-rack and remove those hosting clients so that they can place their own machines because they're a business and they have to do that. Right. Once you start walking down that path, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders to do whatever is most profitable. So we are avoiding that entirely to make sure that we don't ever run into that conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think that that right now is our that's the defensive defensibility of our business because it's I mean it's more profitable. Why why deal with thousands of customers? Why deal with the the challenges that come along with that? Why add you know fifty people and staff when you can just raise money and buy hardware and self-mine, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, will there be a competitor that comes in? I hope so. I, I, I hope I that somebody, because so, yeah. th- I, would, I would hope so. Like, I, I hope somebody comes in and wants to compete with us. We're a competitive bunch. We would like that for sure. Um, but competition makes everybody better. You know, mm-hmm. Apple and Samsung wouldn't be providing us with such great phones if one or the other didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, th- all of this innovation around Bitcoin mining and, uh, you know, using stranded energy, cheap energy, unused energy, all that kind of stuff. And now, you know, upstream and GAM and now Blockstream is doing these, you know, mobile um, Bitcoin mining facilities. You know, it makes me think that we're going to get like a class of like cowboy entrepreneurs that are going to say, okay, I'm going to hunt the world for, for stranded energy, whether it's abandoned hydro, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's whatever, solar, like I'm just Mm -hmm. all around the world, there's abandoned or stranded energy. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to drop a shipping container right on top of it. I'm going to connect to Blockstream satellite, Starlink, whatever the hell. And I'm going to, I'm going to monetize that energy at source and send it right into the market and do whatever the hell I want with it. Like that seems like a no brainer that that's going to happen. You know, it's, and it's interesting to see the different pieces of this puzzle come together because it's like, well, where are, uh, 
you know, where are the complementary services here? And like, this is just totally out of left field sort of to comment or, or idea, but you can see that these cowboys maybe, you know, they, they, they get an upstream or a blockstream container and then they, they do a deal with Compass and say, you know, your customers provide the CapEx for the miners. And basically, we're just another facility like the ones you work with. We're just maybe a little bit smaller, a little bit more uh, unconventional, but it's the same kind of model. And you you can see, like, basically, you and your customers finance that component of things. And then you've got them finding the energy and putting in the work to service it and do all the tech. And you can see a real interesting industry and ecosystem build up in that way where everything is so complementary. You know, you hit the nail on the head. This is something that has been happening more and more often um, in North America. You've got this profit sharing model where you have an investor that comes in and they work with, <clears throat> a, you know, maybe not GAM, but a company like GAM or like Crusoe or like Upstream that's able to provide the infrastructure or of the, you know, the build out itself. They provide the gen sets and they're able to, you know, plug into the gas and make sure that it's all set up properly. And then they fund it. And then the two just share revenue. They, they split the Bitcoin that's generated from those sites. Um, and I think that that is actually the future for institutional players that want to get involved in mining. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see more funds and family offices that are committing to these profit sharing models because they can mimic the lifespan of a fund. You know, if I've got a five-year fund and I want to get into mining, well, maybe I take, you know, $100 million that's committed to fund A that's going to run for five years. I get invested in some kind of mining setup like this. And then I have Bitcoin accumulating on my balance sheet without doing anything. I don't have to worry about excessive counterparty risk or it, you know what's going on with my my hardware. I'm literally just making an investment that's going to return for me like everything else that I would do th from through a fund. Yeah. And you know I really think that we're going to see a big big push for this yeah. in 2022. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting to think of how you m more efficiently divide up the expertise and capital and then come obviously to some financial arrangement between all the different parties but like what if, you know, the, the energy cowboy, let's call them, like their expertise in their job is to find cheap stranded energy and to be the one to manage on site. And, you know, you could do that for very little capital effectively. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you guys become the part of the, the CapEx, which is the miners. Right. Yeah. You bring in your you're bringing your customers to provide the CapEx for the miners. Then all that individual. Basically, it's like the, the ecosystem provides like a really unique financing. And the end result is that every party is properly incentivized, contributing to the network and earning off, you know, benefiting from the enhanced strengthening of the network. And, you know, it just seems like such a, uh, you know, a great model and a kind of a no brainer model yeah. that is probably going to emerge pretty soon as things keep accelerating at the pace they have been. Absolutely. And I, you're going to see more of these energy cowboys, like you said, come into the space. It only makes sense, you know? Yeah. There's so many trapped wells. I mean, if you think about it, the oil industry started in Ohio, you know, it, Ohio, um, Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, there are hundreds of trapped wells, hundreds. And if you get like, you know, one of Steve's um, ohm data centers from upstream data, and you just like move dot to dot across those two borders and stay mining profitably for a very long time. Would you guys 
in, you know, perhaps in the future, are you open to working with outfits like that? You know, because I presume as long as the interview process ticks all the boxes for quality yeah. of expertise and, uh, you know, quality of the facility and jurisdictional stability and what, whatever is involved in that process, mm-hmm. I, I, I presume you'd at least be open to working with providers of that nature, would you not? We would, yeah. And providers like that, we actually take a more hands-on approach from the start. So we, you know, if they come to us early and they say, hey, I've got access to this well and I've got the capital, I, you know, I'm just not sure what to do with it. That's where we can really jump in and help. We can say, okay, this is how we'll set it up. These are the processes that need to be in place. This is the level of service that you need to provide. Right. And we can walk them through step by step. And that makes actually, it makes for a very easy approval process mm-hmm. because we're in more control of it from the start mm-hmm. without taking from their financial benefit. Right. So and this is, this is super interesting, but ostensibly I could come to you, you know, I'm the energy cowboy, right? And mm-hmm. I could say, look guys, I have stranded energy. It's my property. I have title to it, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, you tell me what I, the criteria I need to meet as you just described. Um, and if I meet those criteria, when and how many customers, i.e. demand for rack space, can you guarantee me so that I can do my financing and all that kind of stuff properly? Yep. Presumably that's certainly possible if, if you know, for in, in you, even something you guys might be happy to provide in the future or work with on that basis. We're doing it now. We've got a, a couple of sites that have come to us and they say, hey, look, I've got energy, um, but that's all I know. You know, what can we do with it? And we'll guide them through the process of you know, what they need to buy, how they need to set it up. Is it containers? Is it a data center? Uh, and then we'll put an LOI in place with them that guarantees that once it's up and running, we will take that space from them. Wow. And that allows them to go out and get the funding that they need. Yeah. And one hand washes the other because we benefit when they get up and running, right? Because we're going to have a partner that we know we can work with. Mm. And they're going to benefit because they have a customer that is going to stay with them. Guaranteed customer. Right? Why would, yeah. Yeah. Why would we leave? That's huge, man. I, I'm getting goosebumps a little bit on that one. And that's, that's enormous for energy markets, for Bitcoin markets, for Bitcoin entrepreneurs, for you guys, for, for the customer side that are demanding, uh, you know, cheap, reliable energy. Yep. Incredible. Uh, all right. So along that similar line. Um, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you'll be releasing soon this kind of open marketplace for buyers and sellers. Can you explain that component a little bit more and also the, like why you would do that? So my director of products is going to kill me for talking about this, <laughs> but I'm excited to talk about it. I mean, look, we launched Compass as a marketplace and we've been growing into it for the last year. Uh, but what we want is to get out of the way, right? If you have hardware that you want to sell, sell it. Compass should just be this trusted third party. So we have software that will help to test your machines. We have, uh, you know, the ability to guarantee the sale. We will work on an escrow product if it's a larger order and that's required. Um, but in reality, what will end up happening is that the first people to use this marketplace will be customers of Compasses already. So we, we're already managing the machines. We already see how they're operating. We know where they are. We know if they're good or they're a lemon. So we can help the buyer get a good deal. Um, the challenge of, of launching something like this is you have, to, you have to avoid the pitfalls of things like eBay or Telegram, right? Where you're basically buying sight unseen from somebody that you don't know who they are. The counterparty risk is tremendous. 
Uh, and there's all kinds of horror stories about that. But that's, that's all we're looking to refine right now. So the marketplace itself, when it goes live, you'll have to apply to be a vendor. Once you're, once you're approved, you'll have an account. That account, can, it's an operating account through which you will be able to fund and buy or you know, list your hardware and, and receive money to it. Um, and it'll be the same with hosting space. You'll be able to, once you're approved, just continue to increase your inventory on our site so that you don't have to worry about, you know, dealing with, with anything. As you scale up, you just, you know, increase the amount of space that's available to sell through Compass. Very similar to how hotels do on Expedia or Hotels.com. Right. So they're already verified past all the, the vetting stage. And as new rack space opens up, they just put it up on the market. It becomes available to your customers to, to, to choose and set up. Exactly. Is this what you were, I think, because I, I thought I saw a release recently from you guys where you, you're also going to be selling rigs directly to people. Is that that marketplace? Is that what we're talking about? No. No. So uh, yesterday we announced announced at-home mining. Right. So that's it. At, we've, at-home mining is basically just miner shipped to your house. Um, you know, there's a great Twitter account, Burn the Bridge, and he's been doing a ton, like, a, a ton of content on home mining. He built a, a home mining setup, um, took a video of the whole thing. It was, I mean, it was dope. I, I loved it. He's the guy who had to um, move and he took it all down again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, there's been this movement of people who want to mine Bitcoin at home because right now it's, I mean, it's profitable. You know, you're still making like $20, $20 worth of Bitcoin a day. Um, so we, we just wanted to make sure that people could buy these machines. It's very difficult if you don't know what you're doing to buy them from China, to get them shipped to your house, um, you got to deal with all the the duties and, and logistics and all of that. So we just wanted to simplify it. So you can go to Compass, you pick the machine you want to buy, add it to your cart like you would in any other website, purchase it, and we ship it right to you. Right. And do you guys and do you guys alter the price based on the year the machine, the depreciation? Like that's all you guys take care of that, so people know exactly what they're buying. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So um, when when you're buying from us, everything is as close to market price as we can get it. So our goal is to make sure that if you're buying a single unit, you're getting close to where, you know, people who are buying 100 units would pay. That's awesome. So what other, you know, things are obviously going well. And, and part of what that provides is the opportunity to think about other things, not dissimilar to what you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. What other lines of business or potential lines of business do you see opening up based on the kind of foundation of the model that you guys have created in the next, you know, year, couple of years, whatever? So the beautiful thing that I'm excited about is what other people are going to dream up, right? Like what we wanted to build was a platform through which miners could get access to great products and services. What my hope is, is that in the next six months, we have other people who want to serve the mining space that are coming to us and saying, hey, I would love the ability to sell XYZ to your customers. Here's how it will benefit mining. Because that's where, I mean, that, that's what we're looking forward to. Like we, we you know, we, we may have a couple good ideas here and there, but the community has shown time and time again that they're innovative and that they can disrupt an industry. And I'm just excited to see what they bring to the table um, now that there is, you know, a funnel and a platform for the mining community. Right. So if it, if it helps people mine, if it helps secure the network, then you guys will consider being a platform to bring it to a, you know, a broader audience of people who are demanding those sorts of things. 
we, we love those conversations, yeah. even if it's brand new, right? Like one of the things that I'm most excited about is, uh, so we've went through the fundraising process and I, I got to say like the, the VC community in the Bitcoin space and the crypto space, um, it's, it's a very good environment for, for companies like ours that want to grow, but it's, it's tough if you are, you know, some obscure mining company mm. because many of the VCs don't truly understand mining or they don't know how to derive the same kind of value from mining as they would from like a token project or, you know, an, an equity investment in fintech. It's, it, you know, it's, there's not enough information for them to be able to base their decision on. So I'd like for us to be able to be the first check for people. Like if people come to us and they have a good, like we know the industry, right? So if you come to us and you've got a good idea, like maybe we can write you a check and you can build that product and we can help you sell it on Compass. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Where do you, how do you see the mining industry generally playing out? I mean, you know, because additions of people like you changing the industry, the stranded and waste, you know, energy um, companies that we referred to already, just the general prevalence, size, popularity uh, of the industry. Like, where do you see this headed? What's your, and of course, you've talked to so many people through the podcast prior. Like, where, where do you see all this going? So if, if Bitcoin is the future, which I believe that it is, mm -hmm. right, then mining is going to continue to grow exponentially year over year because the incentives will stay there. You know, we are probably going to see Bitcoin continue to push up over $100,000 per coin in the very near future. You know, the drawdowns will become less and less severe. Uh, we'll have our black swan events every now and again. But because of how mining is structured, the profitability is, it, it's, it's going to continue to grow at an outsized rate. Um, because as we move further and further away from $12,500, right, uh, it, the, the ability to close that gap and make mining not profitable anymore becomes a smaller and smaller um, chance. So I think over the next five years, we're going to see, you know, right now, uh, less than 1% of all power consumed globally is consumed by the Bitcoin mining network. I think we will see that number grow to be over 2%. Uh, so we'll see a, a serious uh, exponential growth factor there. Um, I also think that we're going to see uh, Bitcoin miners be the biggest push and the biggest driver of the switch to renewable energy globally. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, just, it's an exciting time. Like, if you're thinking about like the data center space in, in 2000s and how that grew and, uh, and then it, it, you know, it transferred to the cloud and not everything runs on that, you know, I think that we're going to see a similar evolution in the Bitcoin mining data center space because as more, as more things are developed on top of Bitcoin, as the industry continues to grow, there's going to be more and more of a need for the security for the network. Um, I think it will end up being something that, that, governments are looking into more and more. It becomes a matter of national security. Uh, and we see it just really take the world by storm. Yeah. You know, the, re the renewables conversation is industry is interesting. And there's lots of contentiousness over, you know, the, the climate change issue and the, the necessity or, or uh, you know, how extreme or severe the concerns are. And as a result, how much, how important it is or how much of an imperative there is to kind of make the switch as it were. And I think people in the Bitcoin community are more or less like, well, let's let the market decide. Let's get all the, the 
yeah. things that pervert the market out in, you know, government subsidies, regulations, all that kind of stuff. And let's see what, what the market says. But I'd be one, I, I'm curious from your perspective, because you vet all these providers, these people that turn energy into Bitcoin, as it were, providing rack space. Uh, what, you know, what are the energy sources of uh, the comp- the uh, facilities that you're working with? Predom- is, is, there a, is there a majority that it's a particular kind or the other? So the majority are grid powered. And in the United States, I mean, the majority of facilities are deriving power from the grid. Uh, grid mixes vary, but your most grids uh, and companies, I should say, that, that power the grids have plans to move either entirely to renewables or mostly to renewables by 2030 uh, and then entirely to renewables by 2050. So all of those grid-powered plant, um, facilities, they're going to be moving towards renewables even without any effort on their part. Um, everyone that's building new is, of course, focused on getting you know, renewables first or a majority of renewables. Um, and then you have the contingency that's focused on natural gas, which although it's not considered renewable, I think it does actually more benefit to the environment than any of the other sources of power yeah. mining with natural gas. Yeah. So it's a win-win. And then the push I'd love to see would be nuclear. I'd love to see more nuclear power get used. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a feeling that we're on, on the way to sunsetting all of those nuclear power plants. Yeah. Just the political winds that blow at the, at the moment. Do you it's all, all from Chernobyl? All because that that <laughs> HBO HBO series came out on Chernobyl. That's it. <laughs> uh, as a company, though, are, are you guys basically energy source agnostic? You're just looking for good operators and 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 the, the right rate, or do you have a particular criteria? We in prefer that? renewables. Yeah, I mean, we we prefer renewables. We're looking at mixes that lean towards renewables. Um, but it you know it's a situation. I mean, we're not. There's no facilities that we're working with that are mostly fossil fuels um but we're seeing more and more of just like these grid mixes that are 70 or 80 percent renewable with the rest being you know comprised of fossil fuels uh and then you know texas where we're looking now it's mostly natural gas yeah you know i I find it this is a far more nuanced conversation than the media (laughs) the media is not about nuance right so no 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 shocker there but you know first of all if if the if economic actors deem something worthwhile, then that mm-hmm. you know that in itself is an a, a overt statement that the energy use required for its production is worthwhile. But I think what yeah. sometimes gets lost is like if the the product of the energy is renewable, or the degree to which the product of the energy is renewable basically determines. Uh, how renewable the energy is. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. You know how we used to say like, you know, reuse, reuse, uh, reduce, reduce, reuse, recycle. Exactly. Yeah. And so the, yep. the more productive life you can get out of something, the more efficient its production becomes, right? Because sure. you're able to, to use it for more and more and more things. And so that is a way of making whatever energy went into it more, you know, more renewable extending the the impact of whatever energy went into it. And when you think of a money that is indestructible, indestructible and that doesn't degrade. So first of all, money is the most useful thing in a market because it can be turned into anything else. No other item in the market has that quality. Yes, oil is extremely valuable and useful and cotton and whatever else. But the, the reason why the thing becomes money is because it can it can turn into everything else, right? And so mm-hmm. when you have the thing of the greatest utility, 
And now you have it in a form that does not degrade at all. So effectively it is, I mean, who knows how long the Bitcoin network will last for, but let's say hundreds, if not thousands of years, and it will not degrade. Then you've extended the usefulness of the energy that went into producing that basically to infinity or however however long the network lasts. And every time that money is used to facilitate transactions, to facilitate the meeting of preferences in a market, you get usefulness out of that energy expenditure that went into producing it. So this is why, in my perspective, like the, the quote-unquote environmental impact, and again, determining the true environmental impact, considering all downstream impacts of any source of energy, uh, any, any energy source today, is again, highly political, and as a result, uh, doesn't receive the proper nuance. But let's just right. say that whatever it is, the differences between them almost becomes negligible when you're dealing with infinite reusability, right? So if like the impact of uh, a solar panel is like the minerals and how they're sourced and the, the destruction of environments and stuff to do to that, to, to generate that energy. And then for oil, it's, you know, whatever carbon uh, emissions and what have you. Whatever the discrepancy is between those two things, let's say oil and gas energy is twice as uh, quote unquote harmful to the environment as the mm-hmm. solar panel. Again, I'm not making that claim because I, I don't know, but just for the sake of it, let's say. Sure. If the usefulness of what it produces is effectively infinite in, per- like in perpetuity, and it's not only infinite, but it's the maximal utility, then I think that dramatically diminishes whatever discrepancy um, is involved in its original production. Does that make some sense, or do you know what I'm tra- getting at there? It, it does. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. It's a, a great way of thinking about it. You know, it's probably the reason why most miners and you know maybe i'll get filleted for saying this but uh it's not that they don't care about the environment it's just that they're less focused on the arguments as as the mainstream media is yeah you know like us as a company we look at renewables but our our customers generally aren't like banging down our door asking for renewable sources they want to get online to mine bitcoin yeah and you know, I think that that's probably the, the real thought in the industry. It's like right now, you know, most people are doing the right thing and they're trying to do the right thing as best that they can. They're, you know, playing the hand that they're, that they're dealt to an extent, but they just want to mine Bitcoin because they know that the utility is there in that long term, the benefit to society, the benefit to the world, the benefit to the grid is still far outweighing, you know, the 30% of their operation that's being powered by fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, maybe a final point on that is like, and Alex Epstein talks about this a lot, and I I generally agree with him, is we we should be looking at humans' mastery over energy and climate, not how Mm -hmm. much our activities impact it, right? So if, if the impact of our activities, if we're increasingly able to manage them, then it's actually a net positive, whatever the impact of those activities are. And again, to the fact that those activities lead to the creation of a pristine money, which then facilitates the dramatic improvement of all of our coordinated economic activities, which presumably will translate into even greater mastery over our environment, then again, I think it makes a case that uh, the result is 
what results is of far greater value than trying to manage the inputs exclusively, more or less out of ideological, um, for ideological reasons, you know? Yeah. Was it Alex that said, that, that made the mention of um, society, society's advancement is based on the amount of energy that it consumes? Was it, was it him that said that like, over time, obviously, that we've produced more power as a society, but it's the the ability to consume as much energy as possible that leads to the advancement of our no, that's of that, our civilization. That's some other um, philosopher or scientist. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, though. I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, okay. and of course, it makes yeah. sense, right? Like the more, I mean, an organism's ability to thrive is its ability to source and e efficiently energy. use energy, yeah. right? Yeah. So energy efficiency is like an, an, an adaptive imperative, evolutionarily speaking. And I yeah. think the, the same is true for civilization. And so what we want, we, we don't want to use less energy. Of course, we just want to make sure the energy we're using is not destroying us, is not inhibiting mm -hmm. our ability to flourish as a, as a civilization. And I think right. people like Alex make the case that it's not, right? Our mastery of energy and our ability to harness energy is actually improving our mastery over our environment, right? And now, and again, I'm, he's, a, he's very articulate and I'm receptive to his perspective. I'm also, you know, if technologies emerge, that allow us to impact our environment less while also being market-driven in terms of being the best source and use of energy for our needs, right? So if we can maximally improve our energy mastery and flourish as a civilization while having less impact, then hap you know, happy days. I mean, why not? I mean, I think most people would like that. But the, the problem is in this, in my opinion, is in the signaling of all this, because the mechanism of signaling, i.e. the money, has been broken for so long, and it's permitted so much intervention by governments and such, that we, we don't really know the truth of the situation. And one yeah. of the interesting things about Bitcoin is that it's it's bringing the market signaling back to a more pristine form so that we can contend with what the actual conditions are. And then we can make economic choices as, you know, based off of a more truthful appraisal. Sure. And you know, the, the one thing I always think about is I think everyone wants to leave the world better than they found it. Mm. Right. Um, does that mean that we need to fix the environment? Maybe to an extent, but like you're saying, if, you're able to generate Bitcoin and leave that for the next generation, then isn't that also leaving the world in a better place than you found it? I think so. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely think so. And perhaps the best way to do that, you know? Um, yeah. What, one of the things I wanted to ask you a bit earlier, what, what, what's the hardest part of this, this job right now? Like you guys are scaling seemingly at breakneck speed. I mean, you're, you're definitely achieving high, you know, things more quickly than you thought you might. What's, what's the biggest challenge for you guys right now? You know, when dealing with retail, um, one machine is their entire operation. So if that one machine goes down, their world is topsy-turvy. And, and I understand that. Um, we had a delay with a facility that was supposed to go online in the end of, at the end of August. And we had a few thousand miners that were impacted. Um, and as you can imagine, from a customer service standpoint, it was it was not fun, you know, for for them, for our team. It was a, a big, big challenge because now you have, you know, call it twenty five hundred people who are 
you know, expecting to be up and hashing that are now going to have to wait potentially 90 days or 60 days before their machines can go online. And, you know, in mining delays happen and construction delays happen. They, they happen. But, you know, from a, a service delivery point of view, we were wrecked. We felt terrible because, I mean, again, we're, we're growing fast, but this was the first time that we hadn't delivered 100% on exactly what we said we were going to do. And it was one of those moments for us as a company where we had to look inward and be like, okay, guys, uh, we need to learn from this first and foremost, but how do we make this right for people? Like, what can we do to make sure that these customers, impacted though they are, are still going to have a positive, uh, you know, a positive appreciation for what Compass is trying to do. They're going to understand the industry better. Um, but that that was certainly, and it still is, I mean, it's still ongoing, but that was certainly one of the most trying times for us as a young business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the, the beautiful thing that came from it though, is that in this process, I mean, we did a a Twitter spaces where I just wanted to jump on and talk to people and ended up staying on getting to talk with people for five and a half hours, right? We answered as many questions as we could. I wanted to talk to everybody. Um, I've also, since this, uh, this occurred, I've been spending a lot more time with our community and discord and, uh, and telegram and just trying to converse with everyone to get to know, like, where are you at right now? How does this, you know, feel like what, what's the impact on you personally, financially? Um, and it's really drawn the community close. Uh, you know, we, we ended up issuing about four and a half million dollars in credits to all of the customers that were affected. Wow. Um, just, just as a, you know, and I'm sorry because I mean, we, we felt, I mean, I still like, I feel fucking terrible about it if I can speak so, so plainly because for us, the customer's happiness is everything to me. I want to make sure that they are satisfied at all times. Um, and this is something that, you know, we've learned, learned a ton from, but we've been very fortunate that our customers have really rallied around us because industry standard, if there's a delay, is there's a delay. Wait, you know? <laughs> um, and if, if there's a delay with your hardware, it's Wait. You know, maybe you'll get a coupon from Bitmain. Um, the, but there's not really any kind of uh, customer service recovery or a resolution that's offered. And we wanted to change that. Like, we, we feel like it's, it's important. If you, I mean, I know I would be pissed off, right? If my machine was delayed six, I'm, I'm going to be mad. So they're right to be mad. And we wanted to make sure that we could make it, make it right for them in some small way. Um, but that's definitely been the most trying thing that has occurred since inception of the company. Yeah. Man, it's uh, it's such an interesting story, and and to hear, you know, I, I appreciate the time because it's so great to hear from your perspective what the <laughs> the relatively short journey has been like. But you know, just kind of how you guys are thinking about this and your commitment to service, and you know what uh, what kind of opportunities might emerge by becoming this sort of intermediary platform in the mining space between consumers and producers and you know manufacturers and stuff. It's super exciting. So. Um, I just want to say thanks for the time, man. And, you know, if you've got any, um, final comments or places you want to send people, if they want to learn more, become customers, any of that kind of stuff. Well, John, first and foremost, thanks for the time. I really appreciate this. This was honestly, I mean, I know I've, I've been on the other side of this a lot, but this is a fantastic conversation. man. Like I, I've listened to your show many times, but being on it and just like, I mean, you're just great at this. So <laughs> thank you. I mean, I really just, I probably said way more than I should have, but I, 
No, just uh, you made you made me feel comfortable, man. So thanks for for having me on, and thanks for the the great conversation. Um, you know, if anybody wants to get into mining, just go to compassmining.io. On there, you can find all the hardware, the the available hosting space that's available. Uh, and then if there's questions about anything, and you're you know you've got some trepidation around what to do, just reach out to us. We're here. We've got plenty of people here to serve twenty four seven. So you just fill out a contact form, and someone will get in touch with you. Awesome. Well, I appreciate those kind words and uh, I wish you guys the best of luck. Uh, not that you seem to need it, but I'll, I'll be watching closely and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate you. Cheers, brother. I imagine this discussion has your mind racing with the possibilities which Bitcoin mining represents, as well as with excitement for what Witt and his team at Compass are building. It's amazing to see the birth of an industry right in front of your eyes that has so much potential for positive impact in the world. For more information about Compass, visit compassmining.io and follow Wit on Twitter at Bitcoin Broski. That's at B-I-T-C-O-I-N-B-R-O-S-K-I. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Closing the Loop. See you next time.